You're listening to a podcast from Reality Honolulu. For more information or ways to get involved in the life of the church, visit realityhonolulu.com. Thanks for listening. All right, well, uh, my name is Ryan by birth. (laughs) But I've had a nickname for so long that that is just my name now. My nickname is Riz. There's a story to it. Talk later. Be point of conversation. But you can call me Riz. That's my name. Um, I came out of Reality Carpinteria, Santa Barbara. It's just about 100 miles north, hour and a half north of Los Angeles. And that's where, like, reality started. It's the first reality, and God has just um, added and called us to plant other churches and kind of been involved with all of that on the uh, staying home side, right? Sending people out and going to London and San Francisco and Boston and Stockton and um, all those different places. And God's just done this really neat thing. And then a few years ago, God just said, it's your turn, and you, sh- you need to go out and that's your home now. And so that's what we've done. Um, my wife is Zoe. She's up here. Um, amazing, right? She's the best part of the service, worship. I, I, absolutely. Um, but we have two young kids. If you guys have kids, you know them. Uh, Eva's almost five. Liam's almost two. And uh, we're just excited and honored and blessed to do life here and see Jesus move and work. But I'd uh, love to talk with you after and get to know you more. Um, and uh, I have no problem talking. I like to talk, so... Not, I don't think I'm super hard to talk to, so I think pretty easy. So come up and say hi if I haven't met you, but without further ado, uh, we're, we're going through the book of Mark. Uh, we are going verse by verse, just expositorily teaching uh, the word of God, and um, we've been a church for about five and a half months. Easter Sunday will be exactly six months, kind of fun, right? October 1st to April 1st. Um, and so we're, we're going slow, but it's been really good. So we're in Mark chapter 7 this morning. So Mark 7, verses 1 through 23 is our text today. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we always have it on the screen, the text that we're teaching out of. But if you do have it, um, just to note that I'm teaching out of the New Living Translation. It might be different. Um, so we do have Bibles as you walk in that you can always grab and use, or you can take it home and so you can have a New Living Translation, or you can share with someone next to you. Um, but why don't we turn there. Um, And if you're all there, we will read it together, and uh, then we'll pray. So Mark 7, uh, starting in verse 1 all the way through verse 23, it says, says this. One day, some Pharisees and teachers of religious law arrived from Jerusalem to see Jesus. They noticed that some of his disciples failed to follow the Jewish ritual of hand washing before eating. The Jews, especially the Pharisees, do not eat until they have poured water over their cupped hands as required by their ancient traditions, verse 4. Similarly, they don't eat anything from the market until they immerse their hands in water. This is but one of many traditions they have clung to, such as their ceremonial washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of the religious law asked him, why don't your disciples follow our age-old tradition?" They eat without first performing the hand-washing ceremony. Jesus replied, you hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you, for he wrote, these people honor me with their lips, but with their hearts are far from me. Their worship is a farce, for they teach man-made ideas as commands from God. For you ignore God's law and substitute your own tradition. 
Then he said, you skillfully sidestep God's law in order to hold on to your own tradition. For instance, Moses gave you this law from God. Honor your father and mother, and anyone who speaks disrespectfully of father and mother must be put to death. But you say, it is all right for people to say to their parents, sorry, I can't help you, for I have vowed to give to God what I would have given to you. In this way, you let them disregard their needy parents, and so you cancel the word of God in order to hand down your own tradition. And this is only one example among many others. Verse 14, then Jesus called to the crowd to come to hear all of you listen, he said, and try to understand. It's not what goes into your body that defiles you. It's you are defiled by what comes from your heart. Then Jesus went into a house to get away from the crowd and his disciples asked him what he meant by the parable he had just used. He said, don't you understand either, he asked. Can't you see that the food you put into your body cannot defile you? Food doesn't go into your heart, but only passes through the stomach and then goes into the sewer. But saying this, by saying this, he declared that every kind of food is acceptable in God's eyes. Then he added, it is what comes from the inside that defiles you. For from within, out of a person's heart, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, wickedness, deceit, lustful desires, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these vile things come from within. They are what defile you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the truths that are in it, the way that it reflects and and, and tells us of your character. And God, we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would minister these truths to us, that even though this was written some 2,000 years ago, In a very different culture, thank you that it is relatable and for us. You preserved it for us in this room this morning. That you're the same God, and you have the same promises, and you have the same truths, and you have the same plans. That you desire that we would be a people that come under the lordship of Christ. That we surrender, that we we give up, that we allow you to redeem and set us free to heal us, to restore us, to make us new creations. And for most of us, God, we're sitting in here, if not all of us, they're sitting in here because we've met with you, we've encountered you, you've changed our lives. We may be works in progress, but we testify to the change of the life that we have in Christ. And Lord, as we look at these truths this morning, we pray that you would continue to sanctify us, you would continue to redeem us, that we would bear much fruit for your glory. And God, as you warn us this morning of certain things, we ask, Lord, that we would take these things to heart. You would rightfully allow us to check our own hearts. We ask that you'd have your way. You are so worthy of all the praise and all the glory. Uh, We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as a way of reminder, for those of you that have or haven't been here, Uh, we've got to remember that Mark is actually the oldest biography of Jesus we have. 
by some 20 to 30 years compared to Matthew, Luke, and John. And it's, other gospels were, were written, but this book is, is the oldest biography we have of Jesus's life. Or in other words, it's the oldest narrative or account that we have. And it's compiled by Mark. He's the writer. It's compiled by Mark uh, it's by Peter's eyewitness of counts, like Jesus' disciple Peter, um, that we know really well. It's his eyewitness accounts that Mark compiled and he wrote it down. So what we have here when we read this, it's a historical narrative of eyewitness accounts of what actually happened. And one after another, week after week, we see Jesus doing some absolutely incredible things, right? We see the inbreaking kingdom of God in the person of Jesus Christ coming face to face and firsthand to the people of Israel. Specifically in the, the Galilee region, in northern Israel, God is coming into contact with them firsthand in the person of Jesus Christ. And there's countless, hundreds, if not thousands, of, of miracles happening. People are being healed. People are being set free. People are being freed from demonic oppression. I mean, it, it is like an uproar. It's going viral. The crowds are coming near and far just to touch Jesus, just to be with Jesus, right? He's healing sin. He's casting out demons. I mean, many are coming from near and far. I mean, it's the biggest deal that's happened. For hundreds and hundreds of years, They've, they've learned, right, as Jews, they've learned history really well. They know the Old Testament. They know what the prophets had prophesied about. Like specifically Isaiah, we're going to see here today, 800 years previous told about the Messiah, this one that would come to save and redeem humanity. And Jesus Christ being the Messiah is finally on the scene. And there's 800 years of prophetic history coming to pass. I mean, it's a pretty incredible thing that we've been studying and reading. And Mark, through, through, through Peter's eyes, draws us into these historic narratives. But what happens is, is even though many are coming and everybody wants to see Jesus, not everybody is believing that he is who he said he was. Not everyone is, think, thinks that he's amazing. Not everyone loves him and believes in him and has faith also, there's skeptics, there's fanatics, there's religious leaders. Um, there's three, really three groups of people that, that we see. One is the followers, those that come. They hear what Jesus is saying. They believe, right? They put their faith in Jesus. They believe, and they're following him, like they're trusting him. They're, they're receiving his teaching. They're seeing him as God in the flesh, the promised Messiah, and in those followers, there's this little group, and those are the 12 disciples. Those are the guys that Jesus specifically drew to himself, and he's teaching them. He's raising them up. He's equipping them for the work of the ministry. They're getting a very firsthand view of Jesus. And if it's not the followers, then we have the group, and, and most people are just fans, like, they're just here to see the hoopla. I mean, they're just here to see the show. They're just here watching. Like, I can't believe what's happening. And many have come because they just want to get something from Jesus. They don't really care about Jesus, but they do want to be healed. Right? Oh, my, my, my brother or my dad is a paralytic. He can't walk anymore. Or I've had this sickness for uh, 10 years. Let's bring and let's get healing from Jesus. And so most of the crowds are there because they're just fans of what's happening. Once they're healed, 
They leave. They don't necessarily take to heart Jesus' teachings. They don't necessarily believe he is who he said he was, but they're just kind of fans, so to speak. They're just seeking the gift and not the giver. But also, uh, there's fanatics, or I would say enemies of Jesus. There's people that see Jesus and they do not believe. They are not there to get something from him. But we see, we will see today even more, there's these the groups specifically highlighted throughout the Gospels are the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They were the religious leaders at the time. And when they see Jesus doing all these things, or if, if they were in this room this morning and if they were reading the book of Mark, they wouldn't be in awe of what Jesus was doing. They would be critical. They would see Jesus as a threat. And not only that, they would say he's a madman. And not only that, he's a blasphemer, meaning he is claiming to be God when he is not. He is just a mere carpenter from Nazareth. Who are you saying? You're crazy. You're a blasphemer and you should be punished for that. And ultimately, Jesus went to the cross because of this group of people bringing, bringing Jesus to the Romans and wanting and crying out that he would be crucified. The Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders of the time thought Jesus was committing the greatest of sins by claiming that he was God himself. And today we see an interaction between Jesus and these guys, the teachers of the religious law, the, uh, the religious police, so to speak, of the time that were so intent on holding to Jewish tradition that when they saw Jesus, when they saw what his disciples were doing, they stopped him in his tracks, and this is kind of where we're at this morning. Just to kind of run you through and even to, to take it down to even paraphrase a bit more, I want to give a brief summary of those verses that we just, just read. But what was happening was, like I said, word was just spreading. And right, never, there wasn't cars, there wasn't email, there wasn't Twitter. Um, this was all word, word of mouth, right? People would be healed, they would walk back to the town, they would tell people, and word was just spreading. And kind of the headquarters of, um, you know, Judaism is Jerusalem. And so um, word had reached Jerusalem, kind of the quote-unquote headquarters of these Pharisees and Sadducees, uh, the head honchos, uh, so to speak, heard about what was happening up in northern Galilee, and they, were, they sent some of them to, to see firsthand what was going on, to really observe and figure out and really determine who this Jesus guy was. That's what's happening here. There's, it says that there's these Pharisees, teachers of the law, that have come from Jerusalem about 75 miles to the south. They, they take, you know, three, four days journey to get there to see Jesus. They see what's happening and like before, when they, when they confront Jesus about what him or the disciples are doing, instead of them being amazed, instead of them being in awe, instead of them just spending a little time seeing this guy in action, they are quick to pick apart things that he or his disciples are doing. Right? They're, they're watching him. And they're being judgmental and critical, and they're confronting Jesus and the disciples about what they are or what they aren't doing according to Jewish customs or Jewish law. And in this text this morning, it's as simple as you didn't wash your hands right. right? People are being raised from the dead right now. 
right? These Pharisees, like people are being raised from the dead. People are being walking. The blind are seeing. And these Pharisees are seeing the disciples not wash their hands correctly. And they're going, you're in the wrong. You already see where this is going. They come and they point out a small, nitpicky thing. And what happens in our text this morning is Jesus sets their accusations straight with a quotation from Isaiah, right? He says, you're doing exactly what Isaiah the prophet 800 years ago told us you would be doing. And he's doing this because he's attempting to realign and illuminate the error of their thoughts and their priorities, And he calls out specifically how they're elevating man-made traditions over the divinely inspired, infallible word of God. They're making it about man's traditions and and they're devaluing God's word. And he draws the whole crowd in to teach them about these things. And the point that Jesus is trying to make, or he's trying to show these religious zealots, is that their man-made moral code, right? For instance, the way in which you wash your hands was not from the law. It was not set out by God. It was not in the Old Testament. These were additions that they had added. And he was pointing out the fact that they were making it the main thing when it wasn't supposed to be the main thing. They were, they were, they were being so critical and judgmental on something that didn't even matter. And wasn't even in God's word. And in classic Jesus form, he cuts through all their games and all their plays and all their words. And he goes straight to the heart. And he exposes humanity's broken, true condition of the heart. And he brings it home by, you know, first speaking to the religious zealots, then the crowds. Then he brings his disciples in the house alone. And he, and he tells them of the tangible results of an unredeemed heart and the problems that it causes in all of humanity. And so as we see this story in the context and the settings and the dynamics that are happening, the most important two things, and I think the most important two things that are happening and the most important things that we can get from today and walk away with, and if you're taking notes, it would be these two things. Number one is the reality, no pun intended, the reality and danger of adding and elevating man's traditions over God's word. It's the number one most important thing in this text that we can get is the reality, how it happens, and the danger of adding and elevating man's traditions over God's word. And the second thing is that we see the root and the place of origin of where the real problem in our world lies. Where the real problem of our world lies, Jesus illuminates it for us. So the first thing, the reality and danger of adding and elevating man's traditions over God's word. So this is what was happening here, right? The religious leaders over time, right, over centuries really, had added to the Old Testament. They had added to the already 613 laws that God gave Moses on Mount Sinai. They had added more to it. They had added the way in which you're supposed to do it, the practices, the order, the way you're supposed to dress, the way you're supposed to wash your hands, the way you're supposed to eat. And they they added. They added traditions and religious practices to God's words. And over time, 
Over centuries of doing this, these religious fanatics, these Pharisees, these Sadducees became very legalistic. They became very strict, judgmental, and as we see here, hypocritical to what was happening. The tradition that these Jews, these Jewish leaders were putting on people became so restrictive and they were so involved that the main point, God's word, God's truth, God's promises, wasn't even the main thing anymore. It was absolutely religiosity at its finest. It was, if you look in the dictionary under legalism, it should say Pharisees and Sadducees. I mean, this is the epitome of making it about forgetting the main thing and making it a bunch about rules and regulations and forgetting the heart or the why, what you, what you do things. And so the main point was being lost and neglected, the main point being God's word. And mainly it's because of how much and how many additional things they added in turn uh, required every Jew to follow. And so they would look at Jewish lives, they would look at Jewish families, they would look at Jesus and his disciples, and if they were not practicing all of these added Jewish traditions, they would say, well, you are not living a righteous life. You are not right before God. You are not clean before God because you're not jumping through all these man-made hoops. And that's exactly what they were doing. The Pharisees were acting as these religious police or regulators. And our first five verses of our text explains this. The Pharisees are being very critical and judgmental when they saw the disciples not following their regulations. And this was, this was literally the way in which they washed their hands. Like, you are not washing your hands right. You didn't wash the cup right. You didn't wash the bowl right. You didn't put things out. You didn't do it in the right order. I mean, guys, right? It's, it's hard to even think about loving the Pharisees. You're just like, what? These guys are so nitpicky and they're so judgmental and they're so critical. Because they are. And so they're pointing out, in the midst of everything going on, they're pointing out the way in which the disciples are not washing their hands correctly. And Jesus replies to them in verses 6 through 9 by, by calling them out what they are and then using Isaiah, right? He, he replies, he says, you hypocrites. Like, you're hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship, their worship is a farce, for they teach man-made ideas as commands of God. You ignore God's law and substitute your own tradition. And then he said, you skillfully sidestep God's law in order to hold on to your own tradition. I mean, what an answer, right? His point, though, was that everyone around them and they themselves, they were thinking they were living this super holy, super religious life. In order to like earn and gain purity and cleanliness and right standing before God. But Jesus calls them out and he says, all that you're doing is you're really just putting on a show. You're really just pretending to be religious, pretending to do all the right things so everybody can think highly of you. But really, your heart is far from God. They were doing all these traditions, all these rituals, all these laws, but they were not even obeying God's word. Or they were not strictly obeying, or they were not elevating God's word above it. They were elevating their own traditions over God's word. They were attempting. It was a man-made attempt to become right before God. And Jesus gives an example. He goes back to 
the law of Moses, the law given by God. And if you are these, these Jews that are uh, obeying God's word, so, I'll give you an example of how you're breaking this, right? Verse 10, he says, for instance, Moses gave you this law from God. And the law was, you need to honor your father and mother, right? One of the great commandments, one of the Ten Commandments. And anyone who speaks disrespectfully of father and mother must be put to death. This is a part of the law. But the way you've changed it, it's that it's all right for people to say to their parents, sorry, I can't help you because I vow to give God what I would have given you. Like you've changed it, his point. What, what, what God's law said this, but you tweaked it and said, well, not all the time. Sometimes you don't have to be nice. Sometimes you don't have to honor your father and mother. Verse 12, in this way, you have disregarded your needy parents. And Jesus says to them, you're canceling the word of God. You're canceling out God's word in order to hand down your own tradition. This is one of only many examples. They had exalted and taught and lived by their own tradition so much that they were neglecting God's truths. And it says here that they even went as far as substituting God's for their own. Like God's truths, you know what? I'm going to put my own in there. I'm going to adapt it. I'm going to change it. And I'm going to make for myself my own traditions and my own rituals. I mean, do you see how dangerous this is? This is a slippery slope, and for them, it had, it had infiltrated every part of their life, right? The way they ate, the way they talked, how much they could do here, how much they could do there, what you should dress. I mean, it had influenced every part of their life. And if you haven't picked up already where this is going, the truth is, is that you and I are very good at doing this also. You might think, no, I'm not a Pharisee, and I'm not a Sadducee. Well, let me describe maybe in a different words. I would say that we are really good at imposing our own additional standards upon God's word as we attempt to practice our own faith. We're really good at this. This is what I mean. Depending on how you grew up or your church or how you were raised, it's very common to be like, Hey, following Jesus, you can't listen to secular music. Everything secular is from the devil. Did it say that? Say that in God's word? Is that just you? Is that just you? I know for me, I grew up in a really conservative church. When I was in high school, it was a really big thing, like bring all your secular CDs. We're going to burn them at youth group. (laughs) That's what we did. And I'm not joking. Anything other than that, anything. Doesn't matter if it's implicit or not, doesn't matter if there's bad words, doesn't matter the content. Like, if it ain't, you know, wow 40 or whatever it was back then, I don't know what it, you know, if it ain't that, burn it. But you're like, where does that say in the word of God? That was, that's added. I understand the heart, but I get, I get it, but it's added. Dude, we can make a huge thing about how you dress. You can't come to church like that. Well, it's like, what, what do you mean? Well, you're just not supposed to. Like, what, what do you mean? We get a real big deal of how you dress, how you don't dress. You shouldn't be that. You shouldn't do this. Really good at making it about dress, about music. It's also a big deal in the church, like when it comes to worship, right? Oh, you you can't raise your hands in worship. How dare you? It's like, seriously? Have you ever read about David? He like danced in his underpants. I don't know if you ever read that. 
But then it's like, well, you just can't sit in your seats. You got to, like, and the only way you can worship is, like, dance around. You're like, what, what, where's that? Oh, you can't, like, be loud. You can't do this. You can't sing. Wait, not everybody can stand, right? We, all of a sudden, we've come up with all these things of how we think uh, our faith should be played out. It's a large reason why there's so many denominations, like, so many, and not to say that, that any are bad, but usually denominations will emphasize or there's certain parts of faith that they've, you know, exalted or there's more important or there's more emphasis. By no means, um, obviously, if they're true to God's word, but there's been over the centuries so many times where it's a slippery slope when you, when you just add anything to the word of God, right? When you do things outside of it or when you impose additional ways in which you're supposed to live out your faith other than the word of God. And those are like kind of the big ones, but we do it in very simple and subtle ways sometimes, right? We think our faith should only be played out in certain ways because of how we were raised and how we grew up. Um, and we need to be careful. We need to be careful to think through where we may be doing this. And this is really common, right? So another common one is that if you did something or you grew up in a way that you think is wrong, right? You were too far to one side or you were doing too much or too little of something. A very common thing is to just err in the wrong direction, right? Like, so you abused alcohol. So now you think everyone that's Christian cannot even sip a drink of alcohol. That doesn't say that, but I get where you're coming from, 100%. And I get that that might be really good and wise for you not to do. But again, sometimes we just impose our own convictions, our own traditions, our own ways of doing things on others. And if others don't do it the same way we do, you're wrong. Well, is it the Bible or is it you? Because that's exactly what the Pharisees did. You're not washing your hands right. I grew up in a church that you have to wash your hands a certain way, and if you're not doing that, you're not being biblical. You get the idea. That's exactly what they're doing. And that's exactly the trap that we can fall into as well. We can swing really hard to one side, and our own personal standards can become our own personal crusade for others around us. It, it, it really can and at its worst, this is what that'll do if we become legalistic and judgmental and critical like the Pharisees. At worst, it'll make, you know, it'll make distance at first between friends and family and church members. Then you begin to judge. Your criticism begins to be your judgmental now. And the saddest part, and many of us have experienced this, is when fellowship stops. We divide. We can't go to the same church. We can't, have, uh, we can't hang out. We can't spend time together. But unfortunately, it's not always reasons that are even in Scripture. It's our own preference. It's our own additional things that we put on the way in which we think our faith is to be lived out. So we need to be careful and assess our hearts and just ask the Lord, like, Lord, where in, where in me is this, like, hypocrisy and critical spirit and judgment? Like, but bring me back to your word. 
Like, what does your word say? What is your will? What is your heart? Like, what is the main point? We have to come back to that place because what's happening here is that Jesus is calling these Pharisees, he's calling them hypocrites. And we would call this religious hypocrisy. This idea of hypocrite, hypocrite from the original Greek comes from the idea of like an actor performing on stage that would put on a mask and he would pretend he's someone else. And so a hypocrite was someone on stage that wore a mask pretending that he was someone else so that later he could take it off because that really wasn't who he was. He was pretending to be someone that he wasn't. That's the, where the word comes from, hypocrite. And that's what they were doing here. Outwardly, they had set up so many rules and so many regulations and there was so much structure that they were failing to even remember the main point and to everyone else around them, they were just being hypocrites. They were acting outwardly one way to try to give up and live up to a moral standard that they had made up to prove or earn a right standing before God. And in the next verse, Jesus dismantles this false sense of religion, right? And that's what brings us to the second point. The root or the place of origin from where the real problem in the world lies. So this is what, what I mean by that. As the text goes on, verses 14 through 20 this morning, Jesus goes on to dismantle like the Pharisees' religiosity. And he sets the record straight that it isn't doing or not doing an outward practice that makes you unclean, right? He, he uses this idea of food or wrong foods or not preparing foods to eat properly. Jesus tears apart their man-made moral code and traditions. They were exalting it. For them, you had to live up to that standard or else you were not clean before God, you were not righteous, you were not holy. Jesus tears apart their man-made tradition and code. And they believed, you know, they believed that, that unless you followed that, you were impure and unclean. But Jesus abruptly and rightly leads them to the heart of the issue. And the heart of the problem is the heart itself. The heart being like the seat of emotions or the seat of your being. And so Jesus says it's not what, you know, it's not what you put in your mouth that defiles you. It's what comes out of you. It's not these outward um, traditions or, or things you're trying to do to look good and you're trying to just work harder and be a good person and do all the right things. The source of all that you are and the source of uh, your being comes from your heart. And so verse 21 through 23 he's very, is a very significant window into the human condition. Right? He says, he added and he said, it comes from inside you that defiles you. And then he says, for, from within a human, out of a person's heart, comes all these things, right? Evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, wickedness, deceit, lustful desires, envy, and slander. Metaphorically, you know, these, 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 these Pharisees were pointing at everyone else's sin. They were pointing at how people had not washed their hands and not eaten right and not followed the Jewish law. And Jesus, he didn't really do this, but you can get it. He, he, by saying this, he points their finger and he says, you're the problem. Stop pointing at others. Stop pointing at outward signs. Stop pointing at religion and traditions and rituals. 
He turns the blame on their own hearts. And instead of the blame put on outward things, the reason you become impure and unclean and not right before God is because we have a sinful, wicked, rebellious condition in our heart. It's not that we just don't check the right boxes out and go to church every Sunday and give enough. That's not the problem. The problem is our own wicked hearts. And Jesus rattles off this list, right, of some of the worst problems that humanity deals with. Right? I mean, look at these. Like, this is, these are the worst things that happened then and now. Like, theft and murder and sexual immorality, greed, deceit, I mean, slander, envy. These are the worst parts of humanity. And the thing is, what's causing all these evil in the world? What's causing all these problems? Our own hearts, Jesus said. Don't point the finger at any at any symptom, at any other person, at any outward motion. The problem is in our own hearts. So when you and I, whether it's open up the news or, you know, Twitter or read the newspaper or whoever you find out of what hap- what's happening in the world, when we, take a, when we take a look at our own world around us, it's shocking what's happening, right? There's unspeakable horror going on. Right in Bangladesh and in Myanmar, the Rohingya genocide, 600,000 people have died. The war in Syria. Our own domestic, uh, our country's biggest issue right now is mass shootings. Right? It's absolutely horrific what's happening in our country. Very real. All this is like horrible. And we cry out. And the question always is why? Like why is all this happening? Why does it keep happening? Why doesn't it change? Like, why? how can we be in this place? And right, the news and everyone, you have, you're riddled with differences, right? The answer to that question of why is riddled. And most of the solutions are often to curb and bend and stop behavior, right? The solution to the problem of the world is to stop or change or curb behavior, And I know it's really sensitive, and I know that everybody's in a different spot, but it's happening right now with school shootings. So, right, there's people that would say, we need to take everyone's guns away. And there's also people that say, you need to arm more people, right, to try to stop this problem. There's a problem, there's a horrific problem going on, and everybody's trying to come up with solutions so the problem goes away. But we're very divided, right, of of, of what? But what's the real problem? Ourselves. Humanity's heart that is wicked and deceived and full of deceit and hate and anger because we're far off from God. Like the real problem of humanity, the real problem of everything that I just talked about is humanity's broken, desperate, sinful hearts. Right? We can point to a lot of different things. But Jesus says we need to look no further than our own wicked, depraved, selfish, and disobedient heart to God. Well, so what can we do, though, right? Okay, what can we do? Well, that's where, like, the good news comes in. That's the good news of the gospel, because the same teacher here, the same rabbi, teacher Jesus right here, the same teacher that just exposed the humanity's greatest problem. Like, why is all the evil in the world happening? It's our own hearts. He just said that. He just, he just, he just for, for the first time, he exposed the greatest problem in the world, but also, he is the only answer and solution to that problem. It's Jesus. 
right? It's Jesus' finished work on the cross, and by the power of his Holy Spirit, he's able to change human hearts. He's able to redeem and set free and restore. Bible would say he's able to make us born again, a new creation. Like he's able to take the root of the problem and change the root of the problem. So the root's gone, the plant doesn't grow. Right, that's, Jesus exposes the greatest problem and in the same moment, he's the greatest and the only answer. Because Jesus is the only one that is able to transform us from the inside out. Right, we can set up all these different safeguards and whatnot, but at the end of the day, we need our hearts to be changed. And the saving grace of God is not that it's just some form of behavioral modification that he does in us, but it's an entire removing of our old self and replacing with a new creation. Right? Because Jesus isn't just trying to, like, you know, modify our behavior. He's literally trying to change the root of the problem. So that instead of the list of evil thoughts, sexual enmity, theft, murder, adultery, greed, wickedness, deceit, lustful desires, envy, and slander. Instead of those, it's love, grace, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Like those are the fruit of our lives. Those are the symptoms of our life when our lives are changed. And so do you see what I'm getting at? If the entirety of humanity was saved meaning gave their life to Jesus and were transformed into his image and the root of the sinful heart was taken out and replaced with his love by the power of his spirit, that's going to change the world. I'm not saying that those other things aren't helpful. And I'm not saying that we don't do things to try to stop things, but the root of the problem is our hearts. But the good news of Jesus Christ is that he removes our old self and replaces it and we're born again, redeemed, and restored. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this. Therefore, if any one of us is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. And it's because God gives us a new heart. I mean, the prophet Ezekiel says this. Ezekiel 36.26, he says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh. See, it's not behavior modification that changes the problem. It's the root. It's heart change that changes the behavior. The root of the problem is different. If your heart is transformed into the image of Christ, it's surrendered. If it's his, if it's, if it's under the lordship of Christ, your behavior will change. That's why when someone that does not know Jesus that does not surrender, that has not made him Lord, that doesn't believe in him, now comes to the point where they say, I believe in Jesus. Yes, Lord, my life is yours, right? When, when you give your life to Christ, however you want to describe it, when that happens, when, when the same people in this person's life see this person now, and they say things like, you seem different. Your life is different. Why don't you do those same things? Why don't you have the same addictions? Why don't you have the same problems? Why don't you get so angry? It's because Jesus changed me. It's not that I just became stronger and I like worked harder and I followed all these rules. It's because I surrendered to Jesus. 
and he saved me and he changed me. And now I walk as a new creation, no longer doing those things. And not only that, but we can rest assured that our standing before God, our righteousness, our being clean before God only comes from Christ taking away our sin and him replacing with his righteousness. That letter in 2 Corinthians that Paul wrote that I just quoted, he was writing to the church in Corinth. And right after that, he describes something that old theologians would call the great exchange. And the great exchange is what Jesus did on the cross for us. See, Jesus took our sin and he took it on himself and he died in our place. And what he gave us, right, we gave him our sin. What he gave us, what he exchanged was his righteousness. It's, it literally says he imputed his righteousness to us. We gave him our sin. He gave us his righteousness. And so now we stand before God in right standing. We're justified. We're in the process of being sanctified. One day we'll be glorified. But we can rest assured that our righteousness and our cleanliness before God, that when God sees us, he sees Jesus. Because Jesus has given his righteousness to us and taken our sin upon himself. And as we look towards Easter, that's why we rejoice, right? That's why we celebrate and remember because of the great exchange that's happened, that he died in our place and he rose again victoriously and we share in that. But church, our own moral code or trying harder in your life to be a better person is not the answer. But it's surrendering and allowing and praying that God would change us from the inside out. And that's the only solution. And what our world needs now is a solution. It needs like these problems to be fixed and them not to happen anymore. And the only real tangible like solution, and I'm, I'm not trying to be cheesy, when people say, hey, how do you fix all the problems in the world? It's Jesus. It's Jesus changing hearts. It's Jesus redeeming humanity. And so the symptoms change. The behavior changes when the heart changes. And the only one that can change our heart is our great God and Savior. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, God, that you paid the price. You did this. You change us. You did all the work. And you have freely offered this to us. You say the wages of sin is death. Like what sin results in is death. But... You go on to say, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. What you did on the cross is free. All we need to do is come and surrender and just recognize that we're in need of a Savior and that we're by nature rebellious and wicked, but we have a God that sent his son to die on a cross to take all of that and give us a new heart. So God, there is much to be thankful for today. For those of us that, have, that, that this is true of, that when, when we speak of this, it's our own testimony. There is so much to be thankful and worship you for. For those of us in this room that, that don't know you in that way, I pray, God, that you would speak to us. You would minister these truths, that you would, you would, you would show yourself as a great, glorious, loving God that has the best intentions and desires for all of humanity.
to come to know you. And so, Father, we ask that we would be a people that are free from this hypocrisy and legalism, that we would not forget the main point. We would not neglect your word, which is your will. We would not neglect the, the spirit um, and prayer, that we would not turn to the right or to the left. We would not make it about anything else other than you. So would you help us to do that? And as we worship you, we ask God that you would just uh, get all the praise and all the glory. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.